Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. With a cliffhanger when it comes to the approaching U.S. election season this fall, as to which particular party will end up controlling the government, along with New York Governor Cuomo, who just resigned in disgrace due to sex allegations, and two New York City candidates for mayor as well, one a cop and the other a vigilante, and both of whom hate progressives. And will it be open season once again for those dubious campaign ads? So what about them? Let's find out in our Arts News from Strange Places episode this week, every political ad ever. This election, your choice couldn't be more important. Our candidate is in flattering lighting and full bright color. Their candidate is in grainy high contrast black and white. Spotted through a telephoto lens from behind a bush. Coming back from God only knows where. Our guy points at the horizon and holds a baby. Their guy doesn't have a baby. Their guy has a golf club. The voiceover for our guy is calm, measured, bright. Their guy gets the lower register. And sometimes we slow Our guy has clean headlines and the beautiful lens flare America needs. Here's a scary graph over a photo of their guy awkwardly laughing. Snap zoom. Do you want a snap zoom like that in office? Here's a photo of our guy saluting military veterans. Jump cuts, flashes, static, aggressive colors. You can't trust a guy with graphics like this. Our guy gets stock footage of sunrises and an American flag. Their guy's flag is upside down and on fire. Intercut with overdue bills, war, and a crying baby. Our guy gets doctors, an astronaut, an eagle, hurricane, the Statue of Liberty, crime scene tape, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan, a girl running in a wheat field to escape a dangerous sexual predator, welding, atomic bomb. This election, the choice is yours, their guy or our guy. Inspiring slogan. And thank you, Reason TV, written by Meredith and Austin Bragg, starring Austin Bragg and Remy, with voiceover by Clint Morris. And next up on Arts Express, what do Friday the 13th, the number 499, and 500 years commemorating the destruction of Mexico have in common? This week on August 13th marks the 500-year anniversary of Spain's invasion, carnage, genocide, and destruction of a doomed Mexico, and actually much of the Western Hemisphere back then, is the subject of a new film, 499, a mix of drama and documentary, and laced with stunning poetic, somewhat historical, imaginative storytelling. First, some of what went down back then in that fateful encounter with the Spanish invaders, a presentation of educator and poet Joseph Ellison Brockway. The Aztec believed their destiny was to rule the world. Now, at the height of empire, Motecazoma listened to his dreams and saw the signs. They foretold disaster. Then word came of strange happenings in the east. Boats and men landing on the Mexican coast. Men unlike any they had encountered before. Their bodies sheathed in metal. Matecuzoma sent scouts to the coast to find out more about the new arrivals. They were very white. Their eyes were like chalk. Their hair, on some it was yellow, and on some it was black. They wore long beards. They were yellow, too. The strangers had landed on the Gulf Coast. That was also disturbing information. Centuries earlier, the banished priest from the cult of the feathered serpent, Quetzalcoatl, had left Mexico from the same coast, promising one day to return. Another prophecy that threatened Motecuzoma. If he comes in the year one read, he strikes at kings. Whoever these invaders were, 
whether they represented Quetzalcoatl or a foreign power, Motecuzoma could feel the threat to his empire. And his fears were justified. Spanish conquistador Hernando Cortes had landed in Mexico. Another had come, someone with evil intentions, because Cortes did not come with religious faith or to do good things. He came to commit terrible crimes against the Mexica. As a diplomatic gesture, Motecuzoma sent emissaries carrying the costume of Quetzalcoatl, which they presented to Cortes aboard his ship. Cortes responded with a display of force. He ordered the Aztec delegation shackled and forced to watch as his men fired a Lombard cannon in a thunderous hail of fire and smoke, blowing apart a tree on shore. The astonished emissaries were released and they raced back to Tenochtitlan. Motecuzoma received the news with alarm. Spanish weapons and armor were formidable. We Spanish suffer from a disease of the heart, which only gold can cure. Cortes ordered his 450-man army inland. There would be no turning back. army moved relentlessly toward the valley of Mexico. As Motecuzoma had anticipated, Cortes formed alliances along the way with rebellious city-states. As reports reached the Aztec capital, some of Motecuzoma's advisors argued for a decisive military campaign. But Motecuzoma held his armies in check, unwilling to leave the capital unprotected or risk setting off a general rebellion. Stalling for time, he sent emissaries to protest Cortez's advance, and even had a wall of trees planted across the road to disguise the route to Tenochtitlan. And he must have thought, these men, why have they come? What do they want? Maybe we can attack and kill some of them, but not all of them. For that reason, some did not want to fight. They had seen that if they shot arrows at them, they did not fall. They made a clanging sound as they bounced off their armor. Even if they fired at the horses, they did not die, because the horses had armor. Motecuzoma's worst nightmare was about to reveal itself. Do the former rulers know what is happening in their absence? Oh, that any of them might see, might wonder at what has befallen me. At what I am seeing now, that they have gone, for I cannot be dreaming. And that history of the Spanish invasion, destruction, and domination of Mexico on this 500-year commemoration is the subject of the extraordinary 499, written and directed by Mexican filmmaker Rodrigo Reyes, who is our guest this week on Arts Express and whose interest is in probing the legacy of that fateful encounter on this anniversary as one of those nameless military invaders under Hernán Cortés inexplicably washes ashore today and encountering real people, not actors, caught in the ramifications of violence, poverty, misery, and racism in Mexico in the present time. The director is on the line from Mexico City, but first, against a blood-red backdrop of successive chapters, the nameless invader, played by Eduardo San Juan, finds himself dazed on the beaches of Veracruz as the narrator speaks in Spanish. By a strange coincidence, you arrived almost 500 years after crushing the Aztec Empire, shipwrecked into the future. What brought you to our time?
apareciste una mañana por el oriente en las playas de Veracruz. Why was it important to you to create this film as the director and co-writer? Well, for me, you know, 499 was an important film to make because, first of all, I'm Mexican. I'm Mexican and I love my country. And I think that the conquest is a really important part of our history. It's, it's kind of like our big bang moment. And, um, and I knew that this uh, anniversary was coming, you know, 500 years of like this incredible encounter between Spain and the Aztec Empire. And um, I wanted to use that as an opportunity to look at the needs of our present and not focus so much on the past, but rather like really pay attention to the needs of, of Mexicans today. Um, you know, as, as many people know, we're going through a huge wave of violence. There's, there's a lot of different layers to that violence. And I wanted to use um, this, as an, this anniversary as an opportunity to really kind of investigate w what violence looks like today and how, in a way, this conquest continues right maybe we're not using swords and and armor we're using guns and we're using um censorship and we're using violence against women you know which mexico is is tragically going through a huge spike in in, in what are called uh, feminicides so so the film brings this conquistador from the 16th century and confronts him with the present time and he has to start to make the connection between the violence that he participated in helped to to propitiate and and the violence that's happening today almost as if you know we're seeing a, a long chain of violence so i guess for u.s audiences we can think about the relationships that people are trying to make between you know the criminal justice system and mass incarceration today where uh, black and brown americans are, are imprisoned in incredibly high percentages that don't represent them in population numbers, you know, compared to, to things like Jim Crow, for instance, and how, how those two, you know, are connected, even though there's hundreds of years in between, there's like an ongoing kind of like, you know, policy of, of institutionalized racism. And so like, there's a lot of similarities to that in Mexico, in the way that violence gets reinvented over time. And a big theme of your film is violence, but we don't see or hear about those colonialist perpetrators of that violence today, the U.S., even as Mexico just mounted a lawsuit in Boston federal court against the U.S. gun industry, trafficking nearly a half a million firearms a year to Mexico and leading to nearly 25,000 Mexican homicides last year alone. What can you say about that? Well, my film is in a political, you know, investigation. My film is a, is an experience and a, a creative experience, and I think there is room for all of that. It's all present. There's an interview in the film with a with a, an actual soldier turned hitman, and and that soldier is clearly trained in a very American style. Um, but really, it's a film for viewers to to reflect on and to discuss. It isn't an investigative piece there's no facts in the film there's no there's no statistics or anything like that and i think you know the relationship between mexico and the u.s is very complicated because you, you can't just simply say well the u.s is fabricating weapons and therefore mexico is violent there's an economy of violence in mexico that has made it cheap to murder a 12 year old girl or cheap for a soldier to become a hitman or easy for you know, journalists to be killed, you know, at an alarming rate that can only be compared to places like Afghanistan or Iraq. So the film really is an expansive experience. It isn't a, it isn't reportage. It's, it's a, it's a, it's more of a cinematic experience that touches on all of these things and everybody will walk away with a different reflection. Now the character you mentioned, the death mask he wears, does that have any particular significance? Well, the, the character um, in question, he meets the Conquistador, right? And the Conquistador is played by an actor, but, but the actual, you know, hitman is, is played by, by a real person. He's a, he's a real hitman. And 
he wears a, a mask with a skull on it. And, you know, that that is actually very common when you look at pictures of like areas area that are controlled by cartels like Michoacán or, or, or in Sinaloa. Where, where you look at places like that, you realize that, um, you know, like that's, a, that's become a very common motif for folks to wear like skull, skull masks. It's actually very common. Yeah. And, and it just, it adds a layer of like, kind of like, you know, terror to the interview that makes it more surreal. Um, and I think it heightens the, the, the experience of, of these two characters kind of talking about like what it means to be a soldier yeah. across, you know, five centuries. And your exceptional script is so poetic. What are the origins of the poem recited at one point in a native language, which begins, Wandering hungry and barefoot, he does not know how to write on the pages of his soul. All he knows are coal ovens. Yes, that's a great question, Prairie. That's an actual poem uh, crafted by the character who we see in that chapter. That's chapter three, the Sierra Madre. And in that chapter, we meet a poet. His, his name in, in real life is Sixto Cabrera, and he's a, a poet in the Nahuatl language. He, he writes of the experience of living in the mountains and being kind of pushed into the white areas or the more mixed areas up, down in the valleys. And um, we, met, we were very lucky to meet him. He, he, he came to our attention because he won an award in Italy for that poem specifically. And... Sixto, when we visited his community, he said, you know, I would rather speak in poems than speak in an interview. I don't really want to go into, you know, like this kind of interview setting. I feel like our issue here is that our language is, is being disappeared and our culture. So I want to speak in poetry and I want my poetry to ring and survive in this film. So, so we, we adjusted the, the theme for that and it becomes a, a very beautiful, evocative, poetic moment where the conquistador has to listen to these, this beautiful poetry and that, that shows the richness of, of, the, of the native peoples of Mexico who are still here, who are still in resistance and trying to, to preserve their, their, their way of life and, and their language. Now, your nomad from the future journeys to New York City. What led you to that choice as opposed to, say, a diner in Texas or Arizona? And that entire geographical space that is really Mexico, and originally Latin America, as well as in between, land seized by the U.S. and with a Mexican footprint all along the way. So what led you to your decision not to include that? Well, I felt that New York was evocative of, of like this idea of, of a modern El Dorado, right? It's the, it's the heart of, of, of Wall Street, right? It's the heart of the world economy. And... And there's something to to Man Manhattan itself, right? Manhattan is an island, and so was the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan. It was it was an island as well, and both felt they were the center of the universe. You know, um, I think I think the ending though is, is also very mysterious because we don't really know how the conquistador ends up in in the United States. You know, we we don't know that. Um, we just, it's just suggested, right? And so we're left w w wondering what, what happened. You know, how did he make his way all the way up there? Um, but I think essentially, you know, time passes and, and all of our dreams are, are start to shift, right? As a, as, a, as a human society, right? Like every time period in history thought that they had the answer and that they had figured it out or, you know, every empire at least thought that they, they were the best there was, right? And they have all fallen in, into the waste bin of history because time keeps moving, right? And but but at the same time, like like this idea of power powerful and powerless continues, right? That dynamic we have not been able to break it completely, I think. And what are your thoughts about the denial of any reparations from Spain or even an apology as when Mexican President AMLO asked for one and was told by Spain's foreign minister, quote, it's weird to receive this request for an apology now for events that occurred 50 years ago. What are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, we've been talking about that a lot, actually, with Eduardo, because I'm in Mexico right now with the actor, and we're, we're touring the film along the route where we shot the film, right? And, um, and, and 
you know, what's, what's really kind of, uh, I think, missing from both the Spanish answer and the request is, is, is a perspective on what colonialism really did, you know, uh, and how it actually impacted both sides of the, of, of, the, of the Atlantic. You know, the Spanish people in their vast majority, 90% or more, were subjected to a very similar kind of oppression and erasure, right? Just think about 1492, um, you know, Spain conquers the, 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 the Spanish peninsula, right? The Spanish consolidates, conquers the peninsula, expels the Jews and forces uh, the Moors to convert. That's an erasure. That's a conquest right there. And that's something that Spain is, itself has in process, let alone like, you know, the rigid social mores and classes that, you know, folks have to live with for hundreds of years. So I think it's, 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 a, it's a bit of political theater, too, because the, 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 there is just no dialogue. We have no dialogue with our own history, uh, our shared history between Mexico and the U.S. At, at that level. So I think the Mexican president knew that the apology wasn't going to happen. At the same time, you know, um, there's needs in the present. Mexico has a huge um, amount of violent issues that need to be dealt with. And the very victims uh, in the film specifically have been wanting to meet with the president. They've been wanting to, to connect and to discuss um, about their needs. And so there's, I, I, I continue to see this idea of imposing a solution from the top instead of listening, you know, um, from, from a place of power, actually listening to those who don't have power. And that's a demand that, that is ongoing you know, in, in Mexico today. And, and I think that's part of the reason why the, our violence is continuous when we're not willing to listen. And I think we can take that across the entire world in this effort of, of kind of like building true reparations and true listening. It has to start by, by actually giving voice to, to the folks who are impacted. So, so you know, I, I, it would be great if Spain could acknowledge that they've benefited from you know, hundreds of years of, of colonial extraction. But I feel like if they can't even agree on their recent dictatorship and the history of that, you know, how can we expect them to apologize? And, and yet there's so much more work to do in Mexico itself. There's, we need to take, um, take ownership of, of, of the needs of, of Mexicans today, like the ones featured in the film. And what can you say about the indigenous people of the Zapatista movement? They just traveled by boat to Spain for that commemoration to draw attention to continued inequality and indigenous resistance. Yeah, I love the Zapatistas. They're an amazing inspiration. They're a beacon, I think, of thought and critique. And, and they themselves were very critical of this request for an apology. They saw it as, as just a political deflection. And, and, and I think... What, what I have seen from other indigenous communities that we've met along this tour and that are in the film, like the poet Sixto and other communities in, in Puebla, in Cholula, um, they, they don't necessarily see a, a, a dichotomy of either or. You know, there's a lot of culture and a lot of knowledge and value that came uh, through, through, through Spain and that developed and, and flourished into something wonderful here in Mexico, what they want is to be empowered to continue and to not have to assimilate and, and be erased. And I think, you know, that that's something that, that the Zapatistas have always said. They've never, they've never wanted to just erase and push away um, the Spanish heritage. They, 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 they embrace culture in a very like global and human scale. You know, they see it, this interconnection. And at the same time, they push for this idea of preserving the local and preserving, you know, the diversity, uh, you know, the essential diversity of Mexico. And one of the things that we've talked a lot about in this tour is, is the, you know, the, the presence of 68 indigenous languages in Mexico and how, how many of them are in danger of going extinct. And, and that's a huge tragedy because, you know, in Mexico, we have this, this, this big, you know, kind of sense of nationalist pride and people feel like they're Aztecs and that we're heirs of, to the Aztecs. And, and, and we tend to, you know, socially ignore the, the, the native communities that are still here, like vitally here today, you know, like the, the, there's a lot of racism and classism that pushes them out of the, the spotlight and out of the national narrative. And so there's this very kind of like 
schizophrenic dichotomy between our love for the, our past and, and our rejection of our present when it comes to Native peoples. And the Zapatistas really kind of put their finger in the wound, so to speak, in that sense. Now, you received an award from the San Francisco Indie Film Festival recognizing your, quote, unconventional, creative, and risk-taking work. How do you react to that? And why would you say those qualities are important to you? Well, you know, it's always an honor to receive awards. I think, like, I definitely don't don't plan on making films just to win awards or to take a risk for the sake of the risk itself. I, I feel like sometimes, especially with some of the stories that we're trying to tell, like like the story of, of, of the conquest of Mexico and the legacy today, we have to find new ways of telling those stories because the old ways are, are too, um, they're stiff and they're kind of stodgy. So, so you know, like 499 could have been a film full of experts and amazing academics and intellectuals talking about this, you know, important moment in history, in world history. But um, I really wanted to find a new way to reveal um, new connections, you know, or, or connections that I saw in the world. And that's, that's how I arrived at this idea of a fictional character meeting real people. And, and, and in a way, like, you know, he's fictional, but he exists. He, he exists in society. He embodies power in society and racism and classism in Mexican society. So I think risks are, are great as long as they are true to the essence of what you're trying to do. And, and I think audiences connect with that. And when you try to force your hand and, and just take a risk just to be cool, um, it, it really kind of feels like an empty gesture for many people because we're talking about really big issues here that still impact people um, to this day. So. I always like try to build risks, you know, based on the needs of the story and, and it ends up being very organic and, and making a lot of sense to me. And so that that's what I'm happy with, just this idea of like, is it organic? Is it true to the essence of what I'm trying to do? And how do you feel your own history as someone who has lived on both sides of the border influenced and shaped your film? And what are your thoughts as these 500 years are being commemorated this year, a genocide that is estimated to have led to the loss of nearly 55 million indigenous humans in the whole Western Hemisphere, 90% of the population, and with the Catholic Church culpable as well? Yes, I think that being a migrant for me, um, you know, it's a tough experience, I think, to be a migrant anywhere in, in the U.S. in particular, because um, the U.S. still refuses to acknowledge, you know, so many communities, so many diverse communities across the country. Uh, I know of many people who feel uncomfortable, you know, if they're in different settings, because they're, we're all kind of scared of like this kind of activated racism that is now, um, you know, present in our country. But I think like, on the other hand, being an immigrant also gives you that perspective of being able to see connections and being able to see other truths that are beneath the surface, right? Because you're, you're in the overlap between one space and another. And so I really try to, to use that perspective and that position and to really embrace that in my work, to, to show like these things that may have fallen through the cracks. So I've made a film about my, my grandpa's experience as, as a migrant worker in California, the peach orchards and, and what, what that dynamic was like and how it led to an existential crisis. You know, I've made a film about, um, about the US-Mexico border that, that doesn't you know, fall into neatly into either pro-Mexico or anti-U.S. Uh, I've, I've also, I'm also working on a film about a friend of mine who's also Mexican, undocumented and incarcerated, life without parole, um, you know? So I'm, I try to, I'm trying to understand like the breakdown of these, these systems. And, and then there's a legacy there, like you said, of violence that, that immigrants are keenly aware of and that I'm trying to process myself within my films. I think I have a unique kind of possibility of combining forces and stories from two really important and, and complex settings, you know, Mexico and the U.S. So, so I, I you know, I want to keep exploring those stories and keep digging into those 
kind of shared universes, it, it's kind of a privilege in a way, I think, to be able to, to exist in both places. And what would you hope your film conveys to Mexicans about their history and about colonialism? I would hope that, that, that folks in Mexico um, and, and in the U.S. too, like when we look at our history, that we don't look for easy superhero answers and superhero narratives. I, I hope that, we're, that we learn that we need to hold, you know, difficult truth. And, you know, when we look at history, it's not a clean narrative. And, and I also hope that, that we can understand that, that, that the only reason that violence and, and, and oppression continues is because we perpetuate it. We, we find ways to reinvent it as a society. And we, we each need to do our part to interrupt that chain and to break it. Yesterday, I was in, in the center, the, the heart of Mexico City is a huge plaza called the Zocalo, and, and we were there with Eduardo in character talking to, you know, everyday Mexicans who were walking by and asking them what they thought. And, and it was amazing to see the energy that people had and the hope that they had and, and how many people were keenly aware of the problems that, that we have in Mexico and we're trying to do their part in their own universe, in their own neighborhood, in their own family to, to change some of these things. And I think that's critical for us to understand that we can interrupt history and we can invent it. We can invent a new, a new way of being. So I hope audiences will, will feel that way when they, when they watch 499 and that they'll think it's, it's, it's time to, to start a new time. Thank you, Rodrigo Reyes, for calling into our show. Thank you, Perry. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye-bye. And 499 is in release on August 20th. Next on Arts Express. Attempted murder. Involuntary manslaughter and robbery. Uh, I ended up hitting this person with my car. In this pre-camp program, my job is to get you guys physically fit for hiking. You work on these huge incidents with fires, you know, as high as this building, smoke everywhere. Everything's gonna help get you prepared for a wildland firefighting, okay? It didn't feel like lockdown. It didn't feel like jail. It felt like something else. Looks like uh, our number finally got called. They're desperate for hand crews and we're it. 
the, the heat is like overwhelming and I couldn't breathe. It feels like if we could do this, we could do any job out there. You're always gonna remember this, not as being locked up, but as being a firefighter. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. California is once again on fire and it's unlikely to end anytime soon. But the firefighters fighting those fires include a large number of incarcerated youth who have been trained to combat the fire on the ground. Our guests today have made a wonderful documentary film about those youth who are risking their lives to fight the fires, Fire Boys. I'm very happy to be talking with Drew Dickler and Jake Hockendonner. Hi, Drew. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having us. Hi, Jake. Hi, Jack. Tell us about Fire Boys. Fire Boys is the untold story of young men that are incarcerated in California who are offered a way out by fighting wildfires. And what that means is that they're able to leave their lockdown facilities and volunteer to opt into what they call conservation fire camps in California, get trained as type one wildland firefighters and go out there in hand crews alongside Cal Fire employees to battle the seasonal blazes in California. It's a coming of age story that really wants to examine this correctional path that is hopeful and destructive. We see our characters you know, leave prison and then seek an opportunity in employment with uh, firefighting and find that it actually isn't there for them uh, after they leave prison. Yeah. What percent of the firefighters fighting the California forest fires are actually incarcerated? When we filmed, there were about, I'd say, a little less than half of the active firefighters on fire incidents in California were incarcerated. So we were filming between the years of 2016 and 2020. And that statistic was certainly true within that period. And how did you get involved in this project? So Drew and I were collaborating on short films uh, about pressing social issues. And one of the films we made was about mass incarceration and reentry. And that kind of opened our eyes to the civil rights challenges and you know issues surrounding mass incarceration in our country. We saw men and women who were essentially being exploited for their labor. And when we learned about California at the time, this is 2015, using about 3,000 incarcerated firefighters that were living and working in these conservation camps to fight the wildland fires, one of these camps in California employed juveniles, incarcerated young men, between the ages of 18 and I think as old as 25, they could still be in the system. And that camp is called Pine Grove Youth Conservation Camp. And so we thought, you know, here's a great space to look at young people who are going through the system. We were able to meet them and, and learn about their interests and their hopes and dreams and endeavors, and also seeing them work so hard and be invigorated by this experience, it complicated the story. It wasn't just as simple as like, this is prison labor. Is this prison labor exploitation or is this rehabilitation? It was something far more interesting. You basically focus on, I would say, two main young teenagers, Alex and Chewy. You really take them from being locked up in their little cubicles and then being offered the chance to enter this program where maybe it means they might be allowed to walk around outside a bit. It's really interesting. There are a lot of different angles that we could have approached this story. Um, obviously, there's sort of the, the headlines, incarcerated teenagers put on the front line of a wildfire for a dollar or two an hour. Like That level of exploitation and that angle was important to us. But as Jake mentioned, when we got to the camp and we met the young men and, and we saw the transformative value that becoming a firefighter and doing that work that our country or California desperately needs, you know, that there was a sense of transformation there that kind of became the heart of the story. As filmmakers, what did you see in terms of how is a forest fire fought? Wildland firefighting is very different from city firefighting. You have large, massive acreage, deep, remote forests, and that's where these fires can start. That's where they can grow. And because of the movement of populations throughout California moving out to these rural communities, the need for fire suppression is there. And you have that happening over the last hundred years. And every time there's a community that you're going to see in, the, in these forests, you're going to see uh, a firefighting force that is going to be there to what essentially is a cutting fire line. So that means they, in the film, we explain it as in order to stop a wildland fire, they cut all the potential fuel. So anything that can burn with hand tools, scraping them, 
if you look at a lane of trees that cut all the branches down with chainsaws and these wildland firefighting crews, including the incarcerated crews, you know, have, have two chainsaw teams that cut all the, all the eight, the eight foot cut, any branches, anything in the way that can be cut down any small trees. And then the hand crew comes in with their tools and they scrape the ground and they cut fire line. They keep a four foot wide path of just bare mineral dirt. And that when the fire burns to that soil's edge, it goes out. And that's essentially how wildland firefighting is, is fought. They rapidly grow and they become very, very dangerous. And we're seeing it right now with fire, with the yeah. in, so in that, fire that, that must be terrifying. I mean, and you have some amazing footage of the fires. Were you worried, scared about filming it? You, you must have been right there. There are certainly moments that were scary to be in. There's one scene in particular um, where things go not according to plan for the firefighters. And, and in that moment, you know, we had that choice where you're, you're holding the camera and there's a shot of guys running through the frame and you have to decide, you know, are you going to keep the frame or are you going to run with them? And, and there certainly was that moment. Um, yeah. It's unpredictable. And I think that's something that, you know, we had to really prepare for to not know where we'd be, what shots we'd be able to get, what we would yeah. see. I'm just curious, what are the technical challenges of filming a fire? Yeah, fire, fire is very hot. And you, think, you imagine, you know, getting close to flames and that actually being the, the source of, of the heat, but but really it's the radiant heat. And in some of those scenes, you see the fire, you have 50 foot wall of flames and it's, it's, a, it's a, it could be a hundred yards away from you, 50 yards away from you, you can, you can feel the heat. The flame retardant that the, that the uh, air takers are dropping, it splatters all over everything around you and you get, you get sprayed with this uh, pink, these pink flakes that stick to everything and actually can burn your skin. What other kinds of preparations and permissions did you have to get to do the film? Trust building was very important to our process and including those young men who were incarcerated there who were very distrustful of outsiders initially. It was about inviting them into the process and keeping a very sort of like one-to-one relationship and, and, and letting them be the voices and, and speak to their experience and asking them questions that no one's ever asked them before you know, who they are and, and what is their context. And then also making space for them to speak to the experiences they've had as wildland firefighters. And then also it's really important for us to share with them what we're doing. So our second visit, we had like a research trailer that we had cut that was from the first shoot that they really enjoyed. It was like a short film really about the, about the camp with a lot of these interviews. And so they got to see themselves the way we were actually helping frame them. And then they started, that built more trust. One of the boys says, how many people can say my house was saved by someone incarcerated. Is the public at large aware of what the situation is, that there are all these incarcerated people fighting these fires? It's interesting. In the area where the camp is, Pine Grove, California, the the folks who live in that area have nothing but reverence and, and celebration for the guys at camp. They absolutely know their work. Um, I will say, though, that you know when you go to other parts of California, and it's shocking how few people at large, seem to know or understand who it was who were fighting their wildfires. Do other countries handle teen crime differently? I think our justice system is particularly unique in how we incarcerate youth and how, at the time, I mean, this is, you know, the film was made over the course of five years, a lot has changed. California was incarcerating about 10,000 youth prior to 2010, 2011. And around that time, they actually reduced their incarcerated youth to about 900 a substantial reduction. Mm. That mostly is due to the state shifting the role of juvenile justice back to the counties. This is a moment right now where you know we're addressing something very complex here in the film, which is, I think, the evolution and continued sort of use of convict labor that is extended really from slavery. And you know, there's a lot of uh, things that ev- evoke the film and, and seeing these young men marching in lines and working out a fire line. Essentially, a mod- we saw it as like a, symbolically a modern day chain gang. Is is it true that by California law, the incarcerated firefighters can be retained even though they're otherwise eligible for release because of the lack of firefighters? Uh, yes, I've heard similar things. I'm not uh, as familiar with the details actually oh, at this point. Okay. Yeah. Chewy says that he was sentenced as an adult at 16. Now, why would the system sentence someone as an adult if they're not an adult? Well, I think that goes back to the disenfranchisement and the criminalization of people of color in this country and the, in the history of that. Many of the young men who we meet at Pine Grove were sentenced as adults. And you see this happening more and more. And you see them being, you know, we hear, these, we, we hear their stories. We learn about their experiences of being caught in this system where prosecutors and public defenders 
are negotiating with children's lives. The counties that are, and the judges and the prosecutors that are sentencing these young people aren't actually considering them in the developmental state that they're in. I was very, very interested in the adults who teach the fire boys and, and the adults. Why do they do it? Do you have any insight into them, particularly uh, Jill Hutchinson, the woman who's their main teacher at Pine Grove? Uh, Hutchinson says to one boy who's having trouble, let's just say we volunteered for this together. What's her story? Yes, Cap Fire Captain Julie Hutchinson is a really fantastic person. And, you know, Julie really, I think, does the work of kind of sharing her characterization right away when we meet her in the scene where she introduces herself. And she says, you know, you guys are like my kids. I know you're not kids, you're adults in your mind, but you're kids to me and, and it's my job to take care of you. Um, I will also just want to say that, you know, Julie fire trained Jake and I as well. So we were allowed to film on the line. She took the time outside of work to do that because she believed in the project and wanting to share the story. And so I want to give a shout out to that as well. But I think she's a very complicated character because she she's both the person who is able to empower these young men, give them the tools, and who is also kind of, you know, representative of Cal Fire, an organization that is still exploiting their labor. How we treat that in the film is something that you know, we worked really hard on to exalt her for her hard work and also be clear about the ways in which the men that she's sending out on the line are exploited for their labor. So let's get into that then, the exploitation aspect of it. All along, they've sort of been promised that if they want to become firefighters, they can afterwards. And then Chewie, who is the most brilliant of the firefighters, finds out he can't do it. There's all kinds of red tape. I mean, didn't the admins know beforehand that the felony would be disqualifying for a job on the outside? Yeah, we saw it as he was, may, may have been sold a false bill of goods initially because we knew legally he couldn't just go from working at Pine Grove to working for Cal Fire. Uh, that was not possible straight out, out of the gate. He would have to jump through many hoops and hurdles. He would have to get off parole. That would take two years. He would have to get his felony expunged, which... So with the passage of Assembly Bill 2147, formerly incarcerated firefighters could have their records expunged so they could qualify for the necessary EMT classes to join CAL FIRE. What was the most important thing you learned from this project? I think the most important thing I learned about this project is just a much deeper and, and fuller understanding of, of what it really means to be resilient. As a filmmaker, resilience for this project meant showing up every day for five years on a completely independent project and, and making this film because we truly believed in it and believed in our participants. For guys like Chewie, Alex, Dominic, DJ, Chris, Ruben, all these guys we worked with, it means picking yourself up after the worst day of your life and trying to work hard to find an identity that, that both suits you and that is viewed as positive in society. And the hard work that takes the literal born through fire sense of what it means for these guys to take the risk and push themselves and believe in themselves is something that I think about every day. And that's had a tremendous impact on me. And I'm just really grateful to, you know, have been on the path to meet those guys and to get a chance to be a part of telling their story. Well, thanks for that, Drew. And I'm going to ask you, Jake, the same thing. What was the most important thing you learned? From I think the most important thing I learned is that it does take a community to tell a story and that stories aren't one person's to own and to hold, and that when we collectively decide and agree with full hearts, open minds, and full disclosure, that we have a chance of doing something really impactful. And for Fireboys, I learned that we have to, to change the way we think about punishment and the forms and structures that exist. We want to see practical social change. We want to see prison reform. We want to see laws change. And I think. I learned to some degree, like a story can do that. A, a good story can move hearts and minds. Thanks so much, Jake and Drew. I've been speaking with Jake Hockendonner and Drew Dickler, directors and producers of Fire Boys, available now on VOD and digital from 1091 Pictures on iTunes and Amazon. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.